out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the, pla- the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The grass withers and the flower fades, but these words of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as Colin said, my name is John Trapp, and uh, it's just a real pleasure to be with y'all this morning. Your church and the members of your church have been so encouraging to my family and me as we've begun this work at the University of Texas, and so it's fun to be with you in the flesh, having received so many prayers and support from different ones of you, and I'm just thankful to be here with you. Um, As Colin said, uh, my wife Chrissy is at home with our kids, Owen, Lucy, Georgia, Betsy, and baby number Cinco on the way in December. And uh, she wishes she could be here with you. She sends her greetings. And uh, please do come and meet Mary Henley and Andrew afterwards. They'd love to meet y'all. Uh, I'm so glad to have them here. They're, they're starting their internship. This is the first week of the RUF internship with them. They're, you guys are breaking them in. So we're glad, we're glad to have them here with us too. Um, Okay, so in order to appreciate the passage that we're going to look at uh, this morning, it's going to require us to use our imagination a little bit. So where we find Israel, and by the way, I'm I'm excited to preach this to y'all because last week the psalm that you looked at, it referenced this story that happened with God's people. And, And what has happened is they've just been saved from slavery, from hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt. And this is kind of the seminal salvation story in the Old Testament. And now they are in the wilderness. They're free from Egypt. They are free people. And God is leading them through the wilderness. And the way that he leads them is by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And Now, I want you to imagine, we know from earlier in the book of Exodus that there were 600,000 men numbered in Israel. And that's not including the women, the children, the livestock. Imagine camping with that many people from place to place. There's There's no wheelchairs for the afflicted to use. There's no car seats to keep your kids contained as you travel. There's no Bucky's, you know. I'm, I've, I've learned about Bucky's when I moved to Texas from Alabama. It blew my mind. I made, I was a youth pastor for six years. I made the horrendous mistake of listening to my middle schoolers on my first road trip with them when they asked to stop at Bucky's and I released 25 middle school kids 
into Bucky's. It took, I, I think some of them are still wandering around the halls of Bucky's today. But in the wilderness, there is no Bucky's because the wilderness is an inconvenient place and there are no convenience stores. By definition, the wilderness is a place of inconvenience. It's a place where uh, they don't have food readily available. And now they come to a place where there's not water readily available. They're fed every day by bread on the ground that God sends to them. They're completely dependent. And now they have obeyed God by following his glory cloud through the wilderness. And they've come to a place where there's no water. And Israel's thirsty. And they start asking this question. We know that they're asking this question because of what Moses writes at the end of the story. They ask, is the Lord among us or not? And y'all, this is, this is an interesting question because it is the question that arises out of the wilderness. Is the Lord among us or not? Because you see, the, the wilderness is a place of absence. It's a place of lack. And when we begin to feel lack or absence in our own lives, we begin to ask the same question. It's the question that I find over and over again as I minister to students at the University of Texas. As they deal with things that are lacking or absent in their life. And if you're anything like me, you can relate to this. Maybe for you, it's an absence of a relationship or an absence of justice in your life. Maybe it's an absence of health or the absence of someone that you dearly love who's no longer here or the absence of a job or the absence of a child. And when we deal with these absences in our life, just as Israel is now, it begs the question, is the Lord among us or not? Does he care? Has he forgotten about me? And that's where Israel is this morning as they come to Rephidim, this place that is an ab- where there's an absence of water. And they're asking, is the Lord among us or not. So, as we consider that question, and as we begin to unpack this, let me pray first, and then we'll begin. So, would you please bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you that we can be together now, and we pray that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of all of our hearts, would be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Would you be with us now? And we ask this in the name of your dear son, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so I want to look at uh, three specific points that we see in this passage as we explore this question of, is the Lord among us or not? As Israel asks this question, as you and I ask this question too. So first off, we're going to see that Israel contends, second, that God attends, and third, that water extends. There's a lot of tending this morning, okay? So first off, Israel contends, and this is why I think they begin contending, because Israel is doing the right thing here. Israel has been, they are obediently following God's glory cloud through the wilderness. 
And now he has led them somewhere that feels really hard. And that's a bit of a metaphor sometimes for what the Christian experience is like. That actually you can feel like, man, I've been, I've been trying to do the right things. I've been showing up. And now I'm in a place where there is this lack in my life. And I'm feeling it. It's, it's a little bit of the opposite of what I heard an NFL football player say one time after a big game. You know, he's, he's just won this big game. He's all excited. And they put a microphone in his face. And he says, if you live right, no blessing will God withhold from you. I think if Israel heard that quote, they would have a massive problem with that. Because Israel, they've been doing the right thing here, and yet they're not necessarily getting the blessing. They're not feeling the blessing right now. And that can be what the Christian experience is like sometimes because the human experience and the Christian experience is a wilderness experience. We see it all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sin and they are they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden, out of paradise, into the wilderness. And we've been in the wilderness ever since. And here's what happens in the wilderness. When we're in the wilderness, we find out two things. We find out who we really are and we find out who God really is. I experienced this firsthand when I was in college. So a little bit about me. I went to uh, Vanderbilt University for undergraduate. And uh, I had this friend who's actually, he was a Texan. And I think partially because he was a Texan, he was just super entrepreneurial, always trying stuff out. And I mentioned to him one time that my favorite TV show, and it still is, I think I'm the only person who still watches the show, Survivor. Any Survivor fans? Okay, we'll talk afterwards. I see you. I see that hand. Um, so... I love the TV show Survivor. I think it's fascinating. I think going and living in the wild and having to survive off the land is this really interesting concept to me. And I mentioned that to him, and my Texan friend says, what if we made that an independent study with our professor? And I said, tell me more. (laughs) He said, what if we went into the wild with no food, no water, you know, just the clothes on our back? We'll we'll take some matches because we obviously don't know how to make fire. And we'll go for 12 days. And we told another friend of ours whose godfather had some land in Alabama, and we convinced our professor to let us do this. And so the three of us, after our sophomore year in college, got uh, the clothes on our back. We got a pot for boiling water. We got a knife each and no matches and no food and no expertise, by the way. And we went into the wild. We made our little lean-to hut. And, uh, y'all, I'm going to be honest, it was terrible. It was, it was, a, it was horrible. And um, the story ends with us being mistaken as having a meth lab and the police showing up and telling us <laughs> we have to leave. And that's a whole other story. It doesn't relate to the sermon, but I'll be happy to tell you afterwards. But three days in, three days into this, um, a- after 72 hours, I- I've documented, this is what we had eaten, according to my journal entries. This is what we had had so far. Uh, uh, we had eaten a baby copperhead. We had eaten tree bark, a small cup full of ants, one crawfish, one beetle, and one butterfly. That's all we had consumed. <laughs> and we were completely miserable. 
And then something interesting started happening. Because these three Christian RUF guys who are in the wild, first off, we start turning on each other. Like my friend who killed the crawfish who had said, we'll share anything that we kill, and he ate it all by himself. We hated him (laughs) and are grumbling against him. But then we start concocting all of these plans about, you know, what if we instead stayed at a Holiday Inn Express, kept journal entries, ordered room service, our professor's not here, he'll never know. I mean, we start thinking of all of these ways to deceive. We're grumbling against each other because we're in the wild. And in the wild, that's where you find out who you really are. By the way, all three of us have gone into ministry at some point, so look out. (laughs) But in the wilderness, you find out who you really are. And Israel, now, they're in the wilderness. And they're finding out that they're grumblers. This is actually the third story in a row from Exodus 16 and 17 where we see them grumbling. They're grumbling against God because that's who they are. And my question for you is, what do you grumble about? What are the absences in your life that you find that your heart tends to grumble about? It could be as simple as walking into your closet and looking at your clothes and hating all of them and saying, I have nothing to wear. Or maybe it's the lack of self-awareness of, that kid in your class who's just a goody-goody and answers every question and it bothers you and you want to grumble about them. Or the close talker in the office that you want to grumble about. If you want to catch John Trapp grumbling at 8.30 in our house after the Trapp kids are hopefully all asleep, if you see me open our pantry door and the Oreos are gone, grumbling will ensue. We're grumblers. And Paul in the New Testament in Philippians 3.14, somehow he tells, or I'm sorry, Philippians 2.14, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And I just want to be like, Paul, have you ever done an expense report for RUF? <laughs> They're soul sucking. I'm grumbling about it now. I gotta stop. We grumble. Can you can you imagine? not grumbling about your roommate or not grumbling about your spouse or not grumbling about your kids or not grumbling about your siblings or not grumbling about your teacher. We grumble. And here's the thing. You're going to think, if you're listening to me now, you may think what I'm about to say is an overstatement, but I want to defend this. At its heart, the reason that grumbling is such a big deal is that it's a denial of God. Grumbling at its heart is a denial of either the existence or the character of God. Because at, its, at their hearts, a grumbler, they want to be God because they think they know what's best for them. And when they find that that thing that they know is best for them is lacking, then they grumble about it. Because we deny the sovereignty of God and his perfect care in our lives as we grumble about him. Because we want to be on the throne. 
And our grumbling, as we do that, what we're doing with our grumbling is we actually begin not to just grumble, but to contend with God. That's what Israel does here. This is interesting. The phraseology in Exodus 17, it begins to change. In Exodus 16, you see Israel grumbling. And then in Exodus 17, their grumbling becomes what the ESV um, translates as quarreling. It's the Hebrew word reeve, which means to quarrel or to contend with. This is legal language. The, the, the grumbling has now turned into legal language that Israel, Israel is lodging a formal legal complaint. They're now quarreling with Moses and by Moses with God. They're now contending with him. And what, uh, this is, C.S. Lewis gets at this, at this tendency of us contending with God. What we do when we contend with him is we actually are telling him to get off of his seat of judgment. And we put ourselves in his seat of judgment. And we put, as Lewis says, we put God on the dock to be analyzed and cross-examined. Listen to how Lewis puts it in his essay, God on the Dock. The modern man thinks himself quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, then he, the modern man, is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. See, what we do with our quarreling as it becomes contention with God is that we actually put him on the dock. And this is what Israel is doing. You see, not only with this word reeve that contains trial imagery, but there's all kinds of legal imagery in this passage. You see in verse 4, Moses cries out, they're going to stone me. This, this is the kind of judgment that would happen in a legal decision with Israel for someone who is treasonous. Moses, you have led, you, you are treasonous. You've led us to this place where we're all going to die, they say. We're all going to die out here. You're a tre- you are treasonous, Moses. And they're ready, they're ready to put him on trial and execute him. Not only that, but we also see this trial imagery in verse 5. God tells Moses, take the elders before the people. Now, when a judgment, when a legal proceeding was going to happen, this is the first thing that you would do. You would gather the elders of Israel who were kind of like the court. And you would bring them before the people. And so in verse 5, God says, Moses, get all the elders, get all the judges, right? And gather them together and bring them before the people. And then... Interestingly, he tells Moses in verse 5, take up your rod. Now, we've seen this rod already in the narrative of Exodus. That the rod is taken up when Moses is going to judge Egypt for all of their atrocities. It's the same rod that Moses takes and he smites, he hits, he puts the, the rod onto the Nile and the, the Nile, the waters of the Nile turn to blood, we see in Exodus. This is, this is the rod 
of authority, the rod of God's judgment. It's almost like the judge picking up his gavel. This is a court proceeding that's about to happen. And then something very interesting happens. And and I'm I'm very indebted to a theologian named Edmund Clowney for this observation. But my second point is that God attends this trial. God attends. He shows up. Something happens, though, when God attends, and it's very peculiar. It's unexpected and surprising. Because all throughout the rest of the Bible, if somebody shows up before God and it's a, it's a judgment scene, God is always the one who is seated on the throne. And the man stands before God. You see this in passages like Isaiah 6, where Isaiah shows up before, and God is, he sees God on his throne, and Isaiah is standing, Isaiah actually falls down. And this is what would happen too in Israel. If, if you were accused of something, the elders would be seated, and you would come and stand before the elders. But here's the interesting, surprising thing about this passage. Because look, look at verse 6 if you've got it in front of you. Just listen to me. In verse 6, God is standing. He attends. He attends as the one who's accused. He stands on the rock. The way that God answers Israel's grumbling, this is beautiful. The way that God answers Israel's grumbling is he attends the trial he stands at the rock and then where does the rod of judgment come down it comes down on the rock comes down in the very place where God has associated himself the way that God attends to the needs of the Israelites for their water is by attending the trial that they deserve. And listen, the way that God ultimately is going to deal with the things that we grumble about and accuse him about, all of this is pointing to how God ultimately deals with this. He sends his son, Jesus. It's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, For they, Israel, drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. Just like Moses' rod of judgment and authority came down on that rock, and water flowed out to quench their thirst, to stop their grumbling, to fill their absence and give them wholeness and life, God's rod of judgment, it came down on his own son who came into this world that is a wilderness, who after he was baptized, the first thing that he did, he went into the wilderness because his life was a life of being in the wilderness. And he lived a perfect life in the wilderness, a life of no grumbling, a life of full trust and submission to his father. And he did that, he lived that perfect life so that we could have the credit for it. And then he came under the rod of God's judgment for you. He did it for you. 
so that he could extend his water of grace to me. I, I'm, I'm glad I'm seeing kids in the room right now. If you're a kid in the room, listen to me for a second. I grew up in a great church. It's a church kind of like this. They preached, me, they preached Jesus to me all the time. But somehow, kids, I still didn't understand what this passage is telling us and what you probably hear from Pastor Colin all the time. Kids, what I thought is that God loved me if I was obedient. That God only liked me and loved me if I did the right things all the time. But you see, Israel has been doing the wrong things here. And God is still loving them and showing them grace. And he, through his son Jesus, has done the same thing for you. Because he loves you. He loves your parents. He loves you. So here's the deal, kids. Here's the deal, parents. Here's, here's the deal, adults. God has made provision for you because he delights in you. He's offered you the free water of grace through his son that you, you actually cannot earn. It's a gift that must be given, and he does it because he loves you. And so what that means, my final point, that the water of God's grace extends to us. Not because of what we do. Not because we've been good, but because Jesus has been good for us. And so God's water extends to us. And here's the thing. It is extended to us, and the world around us they're asking the same question. Is the Lord among us or not? Your neighbors, your coworkers, they're asking, is the Lord among us or not? Because they are experiencing the same kinds of absences and lacks in their life. And do you know how God intends to answer their question? Through you. God is a God who comes and he extends the water of grace the stranger. It's so interesting. In the book of John, you see this picture of this. In John chapter 4, there's this woman who she's sitting at a well. She's there in the middle of the day because she's a scandalous woman. No one wants to be with her. She's alone. It's the first person in the book of John that you see Jesus approach. She comes up to him. I'm sorry, he comes up to her. And he offers her water. She's the stranger. She's shocked that he would come up and offer her water. She's like, I'm the one sitting by the well. What are you talking about? He comes up and he offers her water. He offers her true grace and love and friendship. And he's actually, fun factoid, he's the first person, in, she's the first person in the book of John that he tells that he's the Messiah. Of all the people he could have told, this stranger who's an outsider, who's scandalous, a sinner. Jesus comes up to her. This is how awesome God is, y'all. He comes up to this woman and he offers, offers her everlasting life. The water that if she drinks of it, she'll never be thirsty again. And if she drinks of it, you know what she does? She goes back into her village and she says, you've got to meet this guy. Come and meet this man who told me everything I ever did. Which, by the way, if you're a scandalous woman, and someone comes and meets you and tells you everything you ever did, that's kind of, I don't know if I would want to be around that guy. But she does, because he told her everything that she did, and he loved her. 
And so she becomes somebody who extends that water to other people. Come and listen to him. It's why Jesus says in John chapter 7, we, read, we, we had it read for us this morning, that anyone who believes in me, out of him will flow rivers, that out of the way that God intends to quench the thirst, to answer the question of, is God among us or not? It's going to be out of you, through which rivers and springs of life-giving water will flow to your neighbors. It's out of you, New St. Peter's. And I can't help but think, even in that passage, of the bodies of water that were around Jesus when he tells them that. You know, you've got the little Jordan River. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of the Jordan River. In my mind, I imagined it as this, like, massive, epic river. It's not, if you've seen it in person or see a picture. Google it. It's kind of like Cuny River. But it's always flowing. And it's filled with life. But there's another body of water nearby where Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's telling them, about water has to flow, like water's going to flow from you. You're going to be a river of life, springs of life to, uh, to the world. There's another, there's another body of water that has all of these tributaries pouring water in it, into it, pouring, 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 but it's not pouring out anywhere. It's the Dead Sea, and there's no life in it. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. Because it's receiving all of this stuff, and this is the danger of This is the danger for us, is that we would sit under the teaching of God's grace and hear God's word preached, but never never actually extend his grace to others. Not in order to get him to love us, but because he already, already has. He has called us because he loves the world and he loves you. He has called us to begin extending the water of life to others. And what that looks like, it's Jesus tells his disciples, if you're going to follow after me, you have to pick up your cross. He says, anyone, anyone who would save his life has to lose it. And anyone who loses his life for my sake will find it. That if you actually try to save your own life, you're going to lose it. Like if you become, if you try to, if you try to just obey and be good and hear all this grace and you try to save, save your life, you're actually going to become a dead sea. What, you ha- what, what he calls us to do is to lay down our lives. And what actually ends up happening is you find, you find Jesus. <laughs> he's not telling you to lay down, his, lay down your life because he's being mean to you. He's doing it because he loves you. That's what you were made for. And so what that, here's what that may look like, just to give you some examples. What that looks like for me, I, I don't know if I'm ever going like, to jump in front of a bullet for someone. You know, I think of like lay down your life for another person. Maybe that'll happen. It'd be kind of epic. But sometimes what that might look like is, for me, when I come home and I'm tired and Georgia Trap wants to have a tea party for the 500th time and I really want to pick up the TV remote, it feels like dying to put the remote down and get on the floor. But as we die to ourselves, God says we become a river of life-giving water through which his grace flows into and out of and by which he will quench the thirst of the world because your neighbors are thirsty and they will see Christ in you. You, through you, you can do this. He calls us to it because he loves us. And the reason we can ultimately do this is because Jesus has done it for us 
and also because of the picture he has put in the end for us. It was also read for us today. This picture of Revelation 22, where we see a river of life, where there are no absences, there is no thirst. The wilderness is over. It's going to end, y'all. Everything will be made right and whole and good again. And I know, I, I don't know you, I wish I knew all of you, I, don't, I wish I knew the stories in this room, but I know that there are, there are absences in this room. And one day Jesus says they'll be filled. And it's true. And I love, I love how it, the Bible ends. And we get this verse, it's one of the last verses in the Bible, Revelation twenty two seventeen. The spirit and the bride say come. And do you know who the bride is? The bride, we find this in the book of Revelation. All through the Bible, the bride is referred to as God's people. So when the spirit and the bride are saying come, it's like your future self telling you, come. I'll close with this illustration. My, my campus minister, Brian Habig, told me about this. It's, it's a, from a book called Quiet by Susan Cain explains uh, and examines um, the life of introverts. Um, and there's this man named David Weiss uh, who Susan interviews and tells a story about. He grew up in Detroit as a kid. Um, his school, if you weren't like, if you weren't a jock, you weren't cool in his school. And he was this kind of nerdy, artsy kid who like really didn't like sports. And he had, because of that, he just had like a miserable middle school experience in Detroit. Um, and, uh, but now he's in New York and he's a musician. He's doing all these cool things. He's making records with like Alicia Keys and doing all these really neat things. And Susan Cain asked him, uh, like, if you could tell, if you could tell like that 11-year-old boy something, like, what would you tell him? And, and David Weiss just like, te- like tears up. He's like, I would just want him to know that it's going to be okay. Like, actually, you're going to be great. And the end of Revelation 22, 17, it's you telling you, you're going to be great. It's going to be okay. The absences in your life are going to be filled. It's going to be made right and whole and good again. And so now, in the meantime, let's participate in God's work of bringing rivers of life-giving water, of bringing Jesus Christ himself, the water of life, to a world that's thirsty. Amen. Let me pray with us. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself um, as the God who loves sinners, like me, as a God who shows grace to people, to grumblers, who, uh, who actually stands in their place uh, and does it out of your own love. We pray that you would make us those same kinds of people. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Won't you respond to the grace?